today we are in the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 7. And he is talking about this man by the name of Melchizedek. It is a really long, I was going to try to do the entire chapter, and it is so long and involved, even I can't talk that fast. So we're going to take the first 10 verses today. We'll finish it up, God willing, next week. Uh, so I encourage you to do that. But let's read, if I've, I'll read it out loud, if you'll follow along together uh, with me, that would be great. Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. For those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, though through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So Melchizedek, who is this? Now, the first thing as you begin to explore this Melchizedek guy, what you really begin to pick up, and to me it's so important that you understand, is that he is a very much a limited character in the Old Testament, literally mentioned in four verses in the entire Old Testament. So the author of Hebrews has already mentioned Melchizedek more in his little book of Hebrews than Melchizedek has mentioned in the rest of the Bible, all right? So you just got to get that. There are two places, two passages, one verse in Psalm 110, which he's already quoted back in Hebrews 5, and he'll quote it later in this chapter. And then the second place is in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 14, obviously the story of Abram there. And so before we look at it, let me give you background. If you remember when Abraham came to the land of Palestine, he, he also brought his nephew with him by the name of Lot. God blessed both Abram and Lot. Their, their herds, their flocks all grew so much so that they were starting to have tension because you have to have so much pasture land, right? And so they were starting to have some, some issues between them. And so what Abram said is, Lot, listen, 
the whole land is before us. You want to go east, I'll go west. You want to go west, I'll go east. You want to go north, I'll go south, right? That, that type of thing. So Lot lifted up his eyes. And if you've ever gone to Israel, what you realize is that to the eastern side of Palestine, it's called the Jordan Valley. And it's where the Jordan River runs. It's, it's very lush. As you go south, you get toward the Dead Sea, and that's where Lot chose to go. And so he went down that way. In the area of the Dead Sea, there were five, I don't know, the best way I could explain it, kind of city kingdoms. You know, when we think of nations, we think of big pieces of land. Well, back in the day, you could only really protect so much. So they were really more like city states. But there were five cities down there. Sodom was one. Gomorrah was one. Zor's another one. And they, so these five cities is where Lot went to live. He lived actually then particularly in the one of Sodom. Well, as a little background to this... There was a king from the east, the king of Shinar, which think Babylon, that's the king of Shinar, who had come through here before and actually had, had defeated these kings so that they, they, they lived down there by the Dead Sea so that they paid him a, you know, a yearly stipend to you know, protect them and not come and wipe them out. Well, these five kingdoms down there decided to rebel. And so they quit paying the king of Shinar. So the king of Shinar got some other kings and they went to war. Four kings against five. They came to this area of the Dead Sea. They defeated the five kings that were there. And what they did was they took, you know, they took hostages, they took herds, they took flocks, and Lot was a part of that. And so they're heading on back to Shinar, the land of Babylon, which you would have gone north to cross the Euphrates River and head back over there. Somebody escaped. They went and found Abram. And Abram went after him. Now, this gives us a little, the background of this gives us a little size and scope to Abram, right? He is not just him and a few servants. He actually has 318 men that were trained for war. So of his servants, of those who worked for him, 318 men that are trained for war. Plus, he had made some alliances there in the country. So two of the men that he had alliances came with them. They traveled all night. They found the, these, these kings from the east in the middle of the night, they attacked them. God gave them a great victory. They put them to flight. They rescued Lot. They rescued all the herds. You, you following me? And now they're bringing them back. That's the background to Genesis 14 when we read this. And in the introduction of Melchizedek. And it says, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which by the way, Jerusalem brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, speaking of Abram, gave him a tenth of all. So this is the background that the writer of Hebrews is pulling from. And so what he is pulling from is this. 
that Melchizedek was unique. He's different. He, he, and the uniqueness was that he had two offices. He was both a king and a priest. Now you say, well, what's so strange about that? Well, kings weren't priests. Priests weren't kings. If you will remember where he's going with this, and, and we'll get into this more next week, and I don't want to give too much away, but where he's going with this is that Melchizedek, in a sense, is a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus, because Jesus is both king and a priest. And so that's what's really unique. It, so like even with, you looked in Jerusalem, or in Israel, the Kings were the tribe of Judah. The priests were the tribe of Levites. How can Messiah both be king and priest? Well, this comes back to Melchizedek. And so he's both a king of the most high God, so Jehovah, but he's also a priest of Jehovah. Well, we find out what he points out is that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. So if you were to break it into two, Melchi is basically the first part of his name. That means king. Zedek has to do with righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. But he's also the king of Salem or Jerusalem. And oh, by the way, if you understand the name Jerusalem, the Salem on the back comes from shalom, peace. So he is both the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Do you start to see the foreshadowing? What does Isaiah tell us about the Messiah? You may not, you know, the, the verse here is that, that we're going to look at, we, we think about at Christmas time. But what he's trying to say here is he's a type of Christ. So in Isaiah 9, it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is the Messiah. Then it says, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So the whole idea here is that Melchizedek is a type of the Messiah. He's a type of Christ. He's foreshadowing what's coming. And that's the heart of what, what the author here is trying to say, is that, that Melchizedek points ahead to Christ, to the Messiah that God was going to send. Now, there's some interesting expressions here in verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So one of the questions has been about Melchizedek, because he just, I mean, he just shows up, right? So we got Abram, we got the whole story, and all of a sudden there's this little piece, Melchizedek, he's there. He brings out wine and, and bread. And then he blesses Abraham, and then he kind of goes away. And we don't see him again until the book of Psalms. And, and it's talking about the coming Messiah, and you're a priest forever after Melchizedek. So one of the questions is, is Melchizedek, was that a theophany? Now, do you all know what theophany means? 
A theophany is a kind of a manifestation of God in the Old Testament. Um, so think, uh, think Genesis chapter 3, where God comes and walks and talks with Adam and Eve in the garden. That was a theophany. God took upon a human form. We believe it was Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the living word. He is the expression of God. And so it was Jesus who walked and talked, but this is pre-incarnate. It's before he becomes a man. So he takes on that, that, that view of a man. You see it again in, in, uh, in the book of Genesis in chapter 18, where Abraham, at this point, um, goes out and he sees three men. One of them was the Lord God. It, but he looks like a man. He, he, he makes them a big meal and they eat. And then he, remember, he, he begins to tell Abraham what he's going to do to Sodom and destroy it and that whole thing. That was a theophany. I think you see it again later on in the book of Genesis when Jacob comes back. He's got Leah and Rachel with him and all his kids. And you remember now he's going to see Esau and he's all scared. So he sends them all ahead. He's left alone on this island and he wrestles with God, right? Well, who is he wrestling with? Jesus. It's a theophany, which is the pre-incarnate Christ before Christ becomes a man, took on the, the form. So the question is, when it says here, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Was Melchizedek a theophany? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. And I'm going to suggest to you that I think the evidence in the Word of God is the answer is no. I think what it means when he has no father, he has no mother, he has no genealogy, no end of days, I, I, I think the idea here is, is that when you go to the book of Genesis, it's all, about, it's all about the genealogy. It's all about Adam begat Seth, and Seth, Seth begat, right? Abraham comes, and then Abraham begets Isaac, and Isaac begets Jacob. It's all about genealogies. And Melchizedek just kind of shows up out of the blue for three verses, and then he's gone. And I think the whole idea is, is that he is not, he's not recorded there. It's not, but it wasn't the fact that he didn't have a father and a mother. And I think there's, there's a couple reasons. First of all, you look at verse 3, he says he's made like the Son of God. It wasn't that he was made the Son of God. It's just like the Son of God. It's a type. The second thing that we see, if, if you'll remember back in Hebrews 5, when he's setting the table about how Jesus is a greater high priest, right? Remember, the whole book of Hebrews is how Jesus is better than. Jesus is greater than. Got to chapter 5. He's a better high priest. And he lays down the, the qualifications to be a priest. Remember what he said in chapter 5, verse 1? For every high priest is taken from among men and appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God. And we talked about that the one of the qualifications to be a priest and certainly to be a high priest was that they had to be a man. That's why Jesus had to become a man. He had to become incarnate. It couldn't be an angel. 
And it couldn't even be God. It had to be one of us so that he could represent us before God. So when did Jesus become a man? At the incarnation, right? The incarnation is, it's a theological term, but it's literally mean God becomes man, right? So God takes on the form of a man, not just for a short period, but he is now eternally united with both the human flesh and the human nature. And he's the perfect God-man. And he becomes one. When that happens, is at the moment of the incarnation. So when you think back to the Old Testament, had the incarnation taken place there? The answer is no. So he wasn't God. Uh, he wasn't a man then. That didn't take place until the incarnation. So again, I don't think that Melchizedek was that. Another thing that you see is this idea that when theophanies happen, they appear for a short time, like the man comes, God comes with Abraham and has dinner with him, and then he disappears. But one of the things that we see about Melchizedek is that he, he's not just appearing and disappearing. He's been there a long time. He is the priest of the whole Most High God. He's also the king of Salem. That's an office, right? You, you don't just do that and disappear. That, that has to do with that he lived a life. In fact, what's really fascinating to me, and I did not know this, but you fast forward 400 and some odd years to when Joshua leads the children of Israel into the land, and now they start defeating the kings. You get to Joshua 10, and he defeats the king of Salem, Jerusalem. You know what the king's name was? Adonai Zedek. Zedek, right? That, that's the last part. It, it's a dynasty name. He was a Jebusite. So I think the, what, what the author is just simply trying to say is not that he was a theophany. It's just that what Melchizedek was in the narrative, right? He comes out of nowhere. We don't know when he, when he died. We don't know his genealogy. He just appears. And in a sense, what he's going to say in Psalm 10, in fact, this is really kind of the heart later on in, in verse 8, that he, he remains forever, that what Melchizedek was in the narrative, Jesus is in his nature, that he is a king and a priest, and that he is eternal. And so Jesus now, because Melchizedek is a type, points ahead to Jesus. And the heart of all of this is simply this. That Jesus, or Melchizedek, who's a type of Christ, he's going to get to the point where Jesus is greater than all. But right now, it's that Melchizedek, the type, is actually greater than Abraham. That's the main point of all of this. So you have to understand, Jesus is the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. But wait a minute, Abraham, Abraham is the father of all the people. He's the patriarch. Oh, by the way, he's already a patriarch in this moment. Right? He already's got 318 men who work for him, who can go and fight. Right? He's, he, is, he's a, he is in this place of leadership and yet his point is but Melchizedek is greater and he, he makes three reasons why number one 
Melchizedek, superior status, and by greater, that's what we mean. It's a, it's a matter of status. It's a matter of position. Is greater. And we see it, first of all, that Abraham paid tithes. Why would he pay tithes to, to a man? Well, he pays tithes to a man because this man is a priest of the Most High God. He has a greater position. That's why the children of Israel paid tithes to the Levites. The Levites were set apart to represent the children of Israel to God. That's why they received tithes. Well, they were given a favored position amongst all the tribes of Israel. Well, Melchizedek has the position of representing God. And so Abraham pays tithes. It's a superior position. And so he gives him a tenth of all the spoil. Secondly, we see it in him blessing. This is uh, verse 6. But the one who was gen whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Well, we think about how great Abraham was. He had all these promises of God, and yet it was Melchizedek who blessed him. And then he makes this point, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Right? It's always the one who has a higher position who blesses those that, that are below. We see that with, you see that with uh, Isaac, who's going to bless his sons, right? It's a father blessing his children. Jacob does it with his sons. It's always downward, the blessing that you, you put upon people. Uh, we even see it today in, you know, in the church where we, someone gets ordained and we lay hands, right, by others who have already done that. It's a greater to a lesser. Well, it's Melchizedek who blesses and pronounces the blessing over Abraham. In verse, uh, in verse 8, we kind of have the third reason why we see it. He says, in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. Right? This goes to that psalm passage that his, his priesthood has not come to an end. Levitical priest. We'll look at this more in depth next week. But they could only serve for a certain period of their life, and then they were done. The high priest could only serve, and then at death, he was replaced. What we're told in Psalm 110, though, is that you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It is an order that does not end. And this is his point, folks. That Jesus, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, is far greater than the Levitical priesthood. It's far greater than any priest. And again, think back to the heart of this. These people have left Judaism. They come to faith in Christ. They're following after Jesus. Persecution is coming. And so now they're thinking about shrinking back. There's a drift that's going on. Maybe the drift is even happening because, you know, it was really easy. You could kind of measure your spirituality under the law of where you're keeping the law. Now you're having to walk by faith. But whatever it is, they're, they're beginning to drift, and he's just encouraging them and reminding them, don't drift, be diligent, continue on, because Jesus is far greater, far greater than anything in the law, anything in the Old Covenant. 
This is the whole point of the passage. Don't drift. Don't turn away. Don't back off. Stay focused. Why? Because Jesus is far greater. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm struggling with this, you know, because at the heart, I'm a preacher. And what I present are sermons. And, and whenever you're preaching and you're doing a sermon, you have to have the so what, right? So if, if there's no so what, it's not a sermon. You go listen to somebody and, and, and you walk out and you have no idea how you're supposed to put it into practice. That wasn't a sermon. It may have been a Bible study, but it wasn't a sermon. I'm not a Bible study teacher. I'm a preacher, right? So the question is, so what? How in the world does this affect us? Well, the, for the people of that day, it was this idea of Jesus is far better than anything in the Old Covenant. My sense is that probably most of you, none of you are sitting here going, man, it's about time for me to go back into the Old Covenant. Though it happens. In fact, there's a, the, and, and it's always happened. I mean, you read the book of Galatians, you read Hebrews, it's always happened. And sure enough, there's a, you know, a new fresh movement out there today, if you've not heard of it. It's called the Hebrew Roots Movement, where somehow Christianity has, has lost its Jewishness, and, and you really cannot really follow Jesus in a great way until you come back and understand the Hebrew roots of all of this, and literally come back and begin to obey the Torah. And sadly... There are people that fall for it. There are people that start putting themselves back under. And that, you know, we got to worship on Saturday and not on Sunday. And we got to keep all the law, which usually pretty interesting because they usually don't keep all the Torah. They just keep some of it, which is a little easier to do. But what I've sensed and what I have found is that for most of us, we kind of like living by grace and not by law. So that's not a huge temptation. But where are our temptations today to drift, to forget that Jesus is greater than, and to go back to something that is less than? And I was thinking about, I was thinking about what we've all been through the last two years here in our country. You know, started with a pandemic, right? And all of a sudden, safety first. And for some who have left fellowship because of the idea of safety. Now, again, I, I want to be careful. We all want to be wise. We all want to be good stewards of what God has given us. But, but, but people who have walked out of fellowship because now it's, it's not safe. I, I can't meet with other believers in Christ when we're expressly told that that's what we ought to do. I can't come and be a part of gatherings anymore because of safety. To the other extreme of the political side of people are looking at what's going on politically and they, they, they see our, our freedoms being taken and that somehow that where safety is found is in our freedom. And so they're not, they're not into the mask and the vaccines. In fact, they're on the opposite side. You know what they're into? Guns and ammo and, you know, provision and bunkers and all that kind of thing. And the sad thing is, is that what has caused us to drift is we go back to these other things for security when, folk, the reality is Jesus is the greatest source of security that there is. You know, Jesus alone is the one who said, you know, 
I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I hold you in the palm of my hand. Nothing's going to touch you that I don't allow. And that, oh, by the way, even if that day comes when you're to come home, I'm going to walk you every step of the way. But this sense that we've left the security that we have in Christ and we have drifted because we're looking to find security in other things. Someone once put it, we're tripping over dollar bills to pick up pennies on the ground. What about happiness? Oh, that's such a big thing in our culture, right? Happiness, you got to be happy. People start looking for happiness. They try to start figuring out their identity, right? I've got to know who I am, right? I've got I to be myself. And they drift from Jesus trying to find themselves. And in a culture where there's so much brokenness, there's so much mental health, there's so much issues, there's so much anxiety, there's so much depression. And what we've left is we've left the greatest source of joy, of happiness. You know, Jesus alone is the one who said, I came to give life and to give it to the full. And yet we're tripping all over ourselves. In fact, I, you know, one of the good things, and I encourage, you know, people, when you're struggling, one of the great things you can do is see a counselor. Have any of you tried to see a counselor recently? You can't get in. They're all booked up. You know why? Because there's so much anxiety. There's so much fear. There's so much brokenness. And the greatest source of happiness, the greatest source of joy, the greatest source of contentment that we have is in Jesus. And yet we, we, we drift from him because we're looking for it in this culture. What about, what about the whole idea of what we're sowing into? trying to sow into things that we think will bring joy, that will bring happiness, that will bring contentment, that will have security, whether it's a 401k, a 403b, or whether it's into a lifestyle that we think that will produce it, and it doesn't. And yet the greatest source of reaping that we have is Jesus. Jesus is the one who, who pays off big time, right? It, the reality is, folks, none of us knows what's going to happen tomorrow, right? I mean, this thing in Ukraine, is it going to be over in another week and we'll be on to something else? Or is it going to turn into World War III? There's not a single person in this room who knows the answer to that question. We don't know. We don't know where it's going to go. And yet what we do is, is we drift from Jesus who says, oh, by the way, I've got you, right? I'm in control. Walk with me. Lean into me. I'll walk you through this. And oh, by the way, if it leads to World War III and nukes in Phoenix, right? I'm going to walk you home. It's going to be awesome, right? To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. But we, we drift from Jesus looking to try to find security and peace and, and contentment and 
we live for the almighty dollar to put together a 401k and and then 08 happens and by the way the last three months happen right and it goes down and where is it folk Jesus don't don't leave the greatest for something that's lesser you think about hope the greatest hope that we have is not in a political party it's not about who gets elected at the next election Don't, don't drift from Jesus getting caught up in all this stuff. And again, does that mean you don't vote or whatever? No, you do. That's fine. But man, instead of, instead of getting so ingrained with what's going on in the politics and watching news all the time, how about spending some time in God's Word? How about going out and living on mission? How about living one day as though we're going to go see Jesus, right? we got to be busy because tell you what, it sure looks like we're getting close to his return. Lean into Jesus. That's what he's trying to say. Don't trip over and drift from Jesus going back to something that is less than. Jesus is the one where there's the greatest security, the greatest joy, the greatest sense of reaping because it not only pays off in this life but in the life to come. The greatest hope. Lean into Jesus. Lean into Jesus. Lean into Jesus. That's the so what. 